All right, let's, let's begin and uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, and Lord, we thank you for the last four weeks. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to learn more about the Holy Spirit and how you have given him to us and how he works in our lives. And Lord, we pray that this morning as we look at how we can live in the Spirit, that you will open our hearts, that you will open our minds, and that you will help us to be more yielded to the Spirit um, in our lives. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so welcome. This is part four of knowing the Holy Spirit. And we have gone through three uh, classes already. The first one was the identity of the Holy Spirit. The second one, we looked at the works of the Holy Spirit. And the th last week, we spoke about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And today, we will be talking about living in the Holy Spirit. And this will be the last class for um, for knowing the Holy Spirit. So quickly, I want to do a recap. So who is the Holy Spirit? Chris? Uh, so the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He is not a force, not a thing, not a ghost, not a spook, not a genie in a bottle. He is a person and he is God. What is his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit? He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. We spoke about how he is distinct in personhood, but one in essence. Uh, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Uh, there are three distinct persons, but um, each one is fully God. And then we also spoke about how the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That was week one. In week two, we looked at how the Holy Spirit works, and we said that all three persons of the Godhead act inseparably. So any act that uh, God undertakes, all three persons are involved. They take different roles in those acts, but that does not mean one is inferior or superior to the other. They have different roles that they take, and we spoke about salvation or uh, how the Father sent the Son, the Son died on the cross, and the Spirit applies salvation to his people. So they take different roles. That does not mean that they are inferior or superior to the other. And we looked at how the Holy Spirit worked in the, works in the New Covenant versus how he worked in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, we have a permanent presence, but in the Old Covenant, there was a temporary anointing. In the, old, in the New Covenant, all believers are given the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, we saw that, it was, uh, that the Holy Spirit was given for the leaders, and also in the New Covenant, it's for everyone, Jews and Gentiles, but in the Old Covenant, uh, primarily the Holy Spirit acted in the Jews. And we also looked at how the Holy Spirit works in creation, in prophetic ministries, in the giving and illumination of scripture, uh, salvation, sanctification, and service. So last week, we looked at the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We said Jesus is the baptizer, and Christians are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, there, Everybody agrees with that. The part that people disagree with are when does it occur. There are two views. The first one is concurrent to, re to regeneration, which means it happens at the same time as a person is saved. 
that is concurrent to regeneration, and that is the traditional view, and the Pentecostal or the charismatic view is that it happens subsequent or after regeneration. And we looked at four passages, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, um, and Acts 19. So, the pen so based on these four passages, the Pentecostal viewpoint is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary blessing uh, it is characterized by speaking in tongues, and the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to empower Christians with signs and wonders or for other uh, greater tasks. And this, they conclude that this is normative. This is how it is supposed to happen to everybody. That is how it happened in Acts, and that is how it's supposed to happen, and all, of, all Christians are to experience that in the same way as it happened in Acts. And... Um, I added a quote over here, and this is from Rodman Williams. He was um, a pres he was he served as a president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies, and in his Renewal Theology, which is a three-volume series, uh, which is basically his magnum opus. It's a systematic theology uh, from a Pentecostal viewpoint. He says that salvation was deeply experiential. People repented and believed. Only when this occurred. Could the Holy Spirit be received? As in, people repent and believe. Uh, this is going back to the Arminian view that they are able to repent and believe, and they need to repent and believe, and only after they have repented and believed in Jesus, after that, the Holy Spirit is given to them. Okay? And uh, so it's basically after you're saved, after you have put your faith in Jesus, at a later time, it could be two seconds, it could be two years could be many years. It could be any number of uh, amount of time, but after that is when you receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, but we looked at those four passages and we said that, no, that's not the case. Um, Acts 10 and Acts 19 was pretty simple where we said that they received the Holy Spirit as they believed. While they were receiving the word, they believed the Holy Spirit suddenly fell on them. In Acts 2, we looked at the Jews, the apostles, they were in a transition period because the new covenant was not inaugurated yet. They had lived with Jesus, they had walked with Jesus, they had believed Jesus, but the new covenant had not been inaugurated. And uh, at Pentecost, when the new covenant was inaugurated, everybody, the uh, people in the upper room, they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, the Samaritans, yes, it was after they believed, but it was an unusual occurrence, and Luke adds an explanatory cause to say why it was unusual. So this is what we looked at last week, and we also said that the gift of signs was given for every new, new group that came into the new covenant. It was to maintain the unity of the church, because if you remember Acts 11, the disciples are like basically yelling at Peter, how could you go to the Gentiles, and how could you preach the gospel to them? And he's like, who am I to stop the Holy Spirit? He fell on them the same way as he fell on us. So the same event happened, and that was to give them a clear sign that they are also now included in the new covenant. Okay? And we said that the Holy Spirit is given for salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, nobody can be saved, um, and it is entry into the new covenant. Okay, so that was all the last three weeks. If you have any questions, any uh, if you missed any of those, there's a link at the bottom of page two, and uh, you can find materials over there. Raf.
All right, so today we will be looking at living in the Holy Spirit. So we will look at three topics today. Rick, you're here. Good. Uh, the first topic will be, <laughs> last week you weren't here, Rick. Uh, the first topic will be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The second topic, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the third topic will be filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those are the, those are the three things that we will look at today. And uh, uh, after that, we will wrap it up. And as I mentioned, this is only a primer. It's an introduction. There is so much to learn about the Holy Spirit. People have written volumes and volumes about the Holy Spirit and Again, some of you have come and asked me, have you read this book? Have you read that book? No, I have not read every book. And uh, there are so many books. And of course, there's a lot to learn. And um, so we'll look at that towards the end also. Okay, first, what is blasphemy? Anybody? Speaking evil of God's name. Okay. Anybody else? Say that again, Chris. Like receiving a blessing and having the devil. Receiving a blessing and, and giving the credit to the devil. Okay? One more. Denying the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right. All good answers, and we will look at all uh, what blasphemy is. Um, but from the Old Testament, we can see that blasphemy is... Speech that insults or shows contempt for God. I mean, you can remember in Old Testament, Leviticus, and uh, Numbers, and also in Deuteronomy, um, there, was, there were laws given for blasphemy. And again, if you remember the life of Jesus, the Jews were accusing him constantly. The Pharisees were accusing him constantly of blasphemy. He's making himself to be the same as God, as in he's attributing himself to God and he's giving credit to God where credit is not due and he's basically showing contempt for God, saying that he is God and all kinds of things. So they were accusing him of blasphemy. Blasphemy is speech that insults or shows contempt to God. And again, remember, in the Jewish culture, saying the name of God, Yahweh, was disrespectful. And that's why th that was also, I mean, they wouldn't say it was blasphemy, but that was still disrespectful. Okay. So what are the biblical texts that we can look at in the New Testament? Definitely what Chris was talking about, where uh, you attribute works of God to the devil. And in Matthew 12, can somebody read that passage, please? Matthew 12, 28 to 32. Luis, yep. Thank you. 
the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. So, again, everybody is Christians mainly who know about this verse are worried. It's like, have I committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think at some point or the other, all of us have wondered. But there is very different views about what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. And in your notes, you can see that there are four different views. Theologians are conflicted about this. This is not something that's here. It's clear. There are many opinions and there are many views, and we will look at all four of them uh, today. Okay, so the first view is the persistent unbelief. So this is where you're resisting the work of the Spirit in your life. It's failure to embrace salvation. You're just hardened. You don't want to believe. You've been shown the works of God. You've heard the gospel many times, and but there is still persistent unbelief. So that is one view of what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Okay. The second view is it's apostasy by a Christian. And we can see this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And in that passage, you can see that once a person has tasted the heavenly gift, once he has shared in the Holy Spirit, and then he falls away, there is no repentance for that person. Okay, so that is what we learned from Hebrews 6. And some consider that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. View number three, it's slander against the work of the Spirit. Again, this arises from unbelief, and this is exactly what was happening in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, and also in Luke 12, where the Pharisees were basically saying that Jesus was doing all these works, but he's doing them by the power of, um, if you're looking for handouts, they are at the back, probably they're gone. I have one here. All right, so it's, again, going back to Matt, uh, Matthew 12, what Louise was reading, um, Jesus was doing all these works, and they were saying, no, he's doing it, doing it by the power of Beelzebub, who is the devil. And Jesus says, watch out what you say, because you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And the last view is that it's, again, slandering the works of Jesus, but it is specific to the works of Jesus, as in it does not apply today. Okay, so it happened at that time, and it's not applicable anymore. So these are the four different views of what people have interpreted blasphemy against the Holy Spirit to be. Now, for us, I think we can eliminate a few of them just for application purpose. Uh, We can eliminate four because they say it's only for Jesus's earthly ministry. So it does not apply to us. So we don't have to worry about number four. Okay. So we can also not worry about number one. If you're a Christian here and if you have believed in the name of Jesus, if you have put your faith in him and if you're trusting him for your salvation, then you don't have to be worried about number one. Okay, so there is no unbelief. You have believed and you have received the Holy Spirit and you are hopefully living in the Holy Spirit as we will look later. Uh, 
So you don't have to worry about number one and number four. So you're left with two interpretations. The second one, apostasy by a Christian. Um, it is a very real thing, and we have heard of many, um, many people, pastors, who have walked away from the faith after serving for so many years. We've had people in our church who have done that. So this is a very real thing, and what we will look at is um, how we can avoid that, okay, later on, um, down in probably when we talk about living in the Spirit. And again, the third one is same thing. It was very similar to, it can happen today as well, where you're looking at what God is doing, but attributing that to the devil. And again, that arises from unbelief. But again, if you're a believing Christian, and you, you, that probably does not apply to you. So coming, giving an overall summary, right? A lot of theologians, a lot of people believe that this is not something that a Christian can do. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not something a Christian can do. And I will add a small twist to it towards the end. So hold tight. Any questions? Yeah, Bina. Yeah, so for the recording, what Bina is saying is that we have to be very careful with number three because we could look at the works of another Christian and we could say that it is not from God, it is from the devil because we don't understand it or for whatever reason we could do that and we have to be very careful. So yes, that is very true and we will look at that when we talk about living in the spirit. Any other questions, comments? All of you are so quiet today. Say that again, Dale. Yeah, I, I know Dale saying that he was convicted of that. Sorry, Dale, I had to put that in the recording. Uh, <laughs> um, but yes, we have to be very careful, and we will look at that aspect um, in, the, in the coming slides. But yes, it is a very real thing, and we have to be careful. And if you, in fact, if you remember what Luis was reading, Jesus said, like, the one who does not uh, gather with us scatters. So if there is somebody else, what happened? Like, there was somebody else who was doing uh, works in the name of Jesus, and Jesus said, leave him be, right? And so we have to be careful about how we consider work that is done by others, okay? Okay, that was the last slide for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Any questions before we move to the gifts? Rick, I was waiting for that, Rick.
see the way it's presented, it seems that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a single solitary act that you can commit by uttering a phrase one time and you're toast. I, or is it more accurate to understand blasphemy of the Holy Spirit not so much as a particular utterance that comes out and damns you, but it's a resolved condition of the heart that, that will not change. It, it, not, not a single solitary act you do in time Yes, I would say it's the latter. So the question was, is it a one-time act where you say a word against the Holy Spirit and that's counted to you, against you for the rest of your life? Or is it a resolved condition where you have hardened your heart and you have it's a condition of life where you are resisting or where you are not... Your mind is made up. You're not going to follow the Spirit. So I think it's more the latter. Again, we have to remember how we are saved. We are not saved by our works, right? So we are saved by God and His sovereign work. And again, going back to First John, those who went out of us were not of us. So if you are falling away and if you have if you are in number one, that's definitely very clear, persistent unbelief, where you are resolved, you're not going to believe, or you're just not believing, okay? And then you have um, number two, apostasy, which is, again, it's not a one-time act. It's more a way of life where you've said, no, I, I reject this, and I'm going my way, I'm doing my thing, I don't want any of uh, God's work in my life, I don't believe he exists, or whatever you want to say. Uh, it's more a resolved condition. It's not a one-time thing that you do. Yes. If we're in fact saved by the Spirit, born again by the Spirit, to reject the Spirit is to reject salvation. Yes. So if you are born again by the Spirit, to reject the Spirit is to reject salvation. Yes. All right. So let's go to the gifts of the Spirit. So we had looked at gifts very briefly in... Um, part two of the, when we spoke about the works of the Spirit, right? We said that all Christians are gifted. Okay, all Christians are gifted. And we are gift, the gifts are given according to God's will. Okay, it's not according to um, what you are good at. Maybe God is the one who put that gift in you or the talent in you, but Again, all of us are gifted according to God's will. The gifts are given for the edification of the church. There are a variety of gifts. Not everybody has the same gifts. It doesn't mean that all of us should have all of the gifts. There is a variety of gifts. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12, where each one has received gifts according to the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives, who gives the gifts, and He gives according to His will. And God's gifts are irrevocable. Okay? So I want to add one more thing to this list that we looked at in week two. Every Christian must use his or her gift. And you get that from 1 Peter 4.10. Can somebody read that, please? 1 Peter 
as each has received the gift, use it to serve one another. Okay, we are called to use the gifts that God has given. Remember the parable of the talents where one person was given 10, the other person was given five, and the last person was given one. The, the person who was given one talent went and buried it. And then when the master came, he was rebuked and he was cast away. Okay, so all of us have been given gifts. And as we looked at last week, there are no super Christians. All of us are Christians and we've all been given gifts and we have to use our gifts for the edification of the church. Yes, Amy. The question is, how do you discover your gifts? Um, I would say it's a bigger topic <laughs> and I'm going to probably not answer it and do justice here. But again, it's through discernment, it's through prayer, it's through people around you. And again, for any pastor also, how does he know that he's called to be a pastor. There is more work where you have to have the affirmation uh, from people around you and you need to have the desire. So that's a very larger question, but it's more about discernment and um, getting counsel from people around you. All right, so this part, I think everybody is good with. There are no concerns, no, no issues. All Christians agree with this part. The problem comes when we talk about sign gifts. And sign gifts are the, the ones where you do miracles and wonders, the gift of tongues, word of knowledge, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy, and those things. Uh, there are two views. The first one is cessationism. So cessationism means those gifts, the sign gifts, have ceased. They have stopped. They have ended. And these are the verses that are used to justify or to substantiate that from the Bible. And what that means is those particular gifts, tongues, prophecy, healing, all of those, are were restricted to the apostles and they were given to establish apostolic authority, as in to establish like when you have people and you can see um, Paul when he goes and people are like, why should we believe you? And then there are signs and wonders and they see the signs and wonders and then they believe and then they even think that there's Zeus and some of the Greek gods come down and they go and try to make them, like crown them and things like that. And they're like, no, we're just men. But God was working through them. And especially in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, uh, go back and read that. It says that the word was confirmed by um, the signs and wonders. So the signs and wonders were given to establish the apostolic authority. And now we have the apostolic authority in the Bible and that is already established. So once that is already established, we don't need these signs and gifts anymore. They have ceased, and um, they're not for today. So that is the cessationist view. The second view is called continuationism, which says that those gifts are still continuing. It was not given only to the apostles. It was not restricted only to the apostles, but it is for all Christians. And the verses that are used are 1 Corinthians 1.7 and Galatians 3.5. Again, you can go back and read it. Um, and these gifts, they will say, are given for the edification of the church, for the growth of the church, for the building up of the church, for to go from immaturity to maturity. Okay? So uh, these are the two views. And again, I'm, um, I want to make a disclaimer here that Grace Harbor does not include this as part of 
their statement of belief. Okay, this is not something that we will divide over. This is not something that Grace Harbor considers as a central gospel issue. Um, If you look at our statement of belief, uh, we acknowledge that everybody is gifted, but with respect to cessationism and continuationism, there is no official statement. Uh, I know that there are people here who have different views. There are people in our church who have different views, and that's okay. Okay, But the goal is we all use our gifts. Any questions? George. So I'm going to sidestep that question. (laughs) The question was the tongues that you see in Acts. It was a specific language, but then there is also um, what we see today. It's a prayer language. And again, I will tell you that I can go into tongues. As I mentioned last week, I grew up in charismatic Pentecostal uh, for over 15 years. And I can tell you a lot more about what I believe and how my views were uh, shaped and changed and shaped different things, but um, I think for the purpose of this class, if I talk about it, we will not get through anything. But I will definitely encourage you to go read First Corinthians twelve to fourteen. First Corinthians twelve to fourteen, and you can um, there are there are there are specific verses in there which convicted me. And um, yes, please read those uh, th- those three chapters. All right, so with um, I want to say one word about continuationism. So the gifts, some of these sign gifts, and, and it's not a very, it's not universal, but it's mostly the case. Again, there are exceptions to the rule, but in some cases, or in, uh, uh, in many cases, these gifts are sometimes put on par with Scripture. For example, I am called to be a pastor. I don't qualify the uh, the requirements in First Timothy six, First Timothy, or in Titus. It doesn't matter. I know God has told me that I'm called to be a pastor. You have to accept it, and you have I have to be a pastor because God has told me I have the calling. You have to recognize it because it's a word from God. So. In some cases, these sign gifts are put at on par with Scripture. Again, there are exceptions to the rule, but this happens very often. Um, so that's one feature I want to highlight about continuationism. All right, some general comments about sign gifts. Signs can be imitated. 
Okay, we have several passages in the Bible. Remember the story about Moses going up to the Pharaoh and he throws his staff down and it turns into a snake. What happens? There are magicians in Pharaoh's court, uh, court who also throw their staff down and they also become snakes. And then in Deuteronomy 13, God clearly says that if somebody comes to you and performs signs and if you listen to them and they take you away, that's me testing you. So there are imitations of signs that, I mean, signs can be imitated. And you can see the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2 and also in Revelation, Acts 8-9, which is the story of Simon the sorcerer. So they can be imitated. So what do we do if they can be imitated? Don't go chasing miracles or miracle workers. Okay, this is something that was very common back in India. Um, there's a prophet here, and if you go to him, he will pray over you, and whatever your trouble is will go away. Or there's a miracle worker here. Go pray. To, go go talk to him. Go meet him, and go have him pray over you, and his prayers will be answered because he's a miracle worker. He's got that power. He's got that uh, channel to God where God listens to him. No. Don't, go, don't do that. Instead, pray for endurance. Remember James 1, uh, 3. Count it all joy when you go through various trials. Because trials produce endurance. If you're going through any troubles, pray for endurance. Ask God to give you the grace to go through it. Because God is bringing that into your life for a purpose. It doesn't mean that we don't pray, God take this away from me. Of course we pray, God take this away from me. But if it's not his will, remember Jesus in the garden, if it is your will, let this cup pass. If not, let your will be done. Not as I will, but as you will. Gottfried. Yep, Godfrey just mentioned what happens in Africa where there are pastors and people are going after pastors because if you go to the, those pastors, they will pray for you. And in fact, pastors themselves are telling people, come to me because I can pray for you and get whatever you're looking for will happen. So again, uh, I know there are, there are probably more comments and we can talk about it, but I need to move on. Um, what we are to do is to test all spirits. We are commanded in 1 John 4, 1 to 2, that we are to test all spirits, right? And how do we test all spirits? Scripture is our ultimate authority, okay? There is no other authority given to us on earth other than God's word. And God works through his word. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to convict us, to sanctify us, to help us discern, to do a lot of things uh, so that we can be conformed and transformed to Jesus' image. So we are called to test all spirits and to make sure that um, what we are seeing, what we are hearing is from God and what is not from God. And this is going back to 
point number three in blasphemy, uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you have people who are doing works somewhere else, but you don't know if it is God or if it is not from God. Test them, okay? As much as you can, test them, and once you are convinced, then make your decision. Yes, Nisa. So what Nisa was saying is when you hear other people's experiences, always point them back to God's word and use God's word as your yardstick, as what you judge everything by. Kevin has something to say. Yep, for the recording, Kevin pointed two things. First is ground yourself in the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. That is our uh, authority. And the second is the Spirit works in different ways, and we are to test all spirits. And um, we have to recognize that there is some amount of subjectivity, but once we are grounded in the sufficiency of Scripture, that will help us to know what is from God and what is not from God. All right, so that is all about sign gifts, and I'm moving on because I have about five minutes. Filling of the Holy Spirit, our last topic today. So this command comes directly from Ephesians 5.18, and Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at what exactly that means and how that applies to us as Christians. So the first thing to note, a little bit of grammar it is an imperative. It is a command. Paul's telling, Paul's telling us, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second point, it is a continuous tense verb. It's not a one-time event. It is continuous. 
con- be continuously filled with the Spirit. And the third point is that it is a passive verb. Okay, it's passive verb as in it's being done to you. Okay, you are being filled. Okay, so it's a command, it's a continuous action, and it is a passive verb. It's being done to you. So what does that mean for us? It is a command that calls for us to be receptive to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that means that we respond by yielding to the Spirit. And we will look at what that means in the next slide. But again, it is a command where we receive the Holy Spirit. We, uh, we are receptive to the Holy Spirit. Sorry. We are receptive to the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Every New Covenant Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them. And we have to be more and more yielded to the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like? We have to remove the things that prevent us from yielding to the Holy Spirit. Again, going back to being an engineer, you minimize your negatives, you maximize your positives. Your flesh is definitely a negative when it comes to yielding to the spirit, the desires of your flesh. And you can go back and read Galatians 5, 16 to 21, where he says, do not walk by the flesh. And he lists out so many things that are the deeds of the flesh. We have to resist those. And Romans 8, 13, uh, by the spirit, kill, put to death the deeds of the flesh. John Owen wrote a book it's called The Mortification of Sin. And the whole book is based on this one verse, Romans 8, 13, by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Okay, so we have to get rid of the things that are preventing us, our desires, our fleshly desires. And again, I can go into examples. Um, you, you know you're supposed to read the Bible, but no, I just want to sit on the couch and watch TV. No, you're supposed to go read the Bible. Put to death the desire of your flesh. Go read your Bible. And that brings me to the second point, practice spiritual disciplines. Um, go read your Bible, pray, meet with people, come to church, and uh, fast. Do everything that will um, maximize the positives. These are the positives. Minimize the negatives and maximize the positives. And finally, if you look at the context of Ephesians 5.18, in 19 to 21, he lists four things that he tells us to do, and all of those are related to being in community, be part of a body of believers, okay? Be part of a body of believers. He talks about community, he talks about worship, he talks about thanksgiving, and he talks about um, love for others. Submitting to others, yes. So again, how do we live in the spirit? How do we walk in the spirit? That's the, that's the language that Paul uses in Galatians 5. If you are live, if you if you live by the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. Okay, walking in the Spirit means you are yielded to the Spirit. You are receptive to what the Spirit, who is living in you, is asking you to do, or is telling you to do, or is um, prompting you to do. Any questions?
And again, it's not a, it doesn't happen overnight, right? It does not happen overnight. It is a process. Sanctification is a process. And the Spirit works in us every day, little by little, and takes away the negatives and maximizes the positives. But we are also working with the Spirit in our sanctification. And we are doing our spiritual disciplines. We are not doing things that we are not supposed to do. And we are doing the things that we are supposed to do as commanded by the Word of God. And that helps us to walk by the Spirit. And finally, we must produce fruit. John 15, where Jesus talks about he is the vine and we are the branches, we have to produce fruit. Galatians 5, 22-24. Um, Raph, L-J-P-P? K-G-F-G-S. Okay, the nine, gifts of, nine, nine uh, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, gentleness. Goodness. Self-control. Go back and look at that in Galatians 5, 22 to 24. Producing fruit is our evidence of walking in the Spirit. Okay? Think about John 15. Every branch that does not produce fruit will be cut away, but every branch that does produce fruit will be pruned so that it produces more fruit. Walking, When we are walking in the Spirit... It will be evident. It will be evident to people. Right? It's like something's different about this guy. And finally, to tie it all back, if you are walking in the Spirit, you will not blaspheme the Spirit. Going back to the point I made, many theologians say that if you're a Christian, you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. My twist is if you are walking in the Spirit, you will not blaspheme the Spirit. All right, so we're concluding our series. And again, as I said, learn more. There is so much about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He is the seal that God has given us as assurance of our salvation. And He works in and through us to make us more and more like Jesus. So let's learn more about who the Holy Spirit is. And also let us have a balanced view of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's live by the Spirit and let's delight in the Holy Spirit. Any final comments? Isaiah? So your second point about asking God to do great things. Yes, we have to ask God for great things. Everything that happens in our life is a miracle. We are saved. That is a miracle. Right? We are 
continuing, we are here this morning. That is a miracle. We open our Bibles and read every day. That is a miracle, right? It's the working of the Spirit in our lives. Those are miracles. How do you expect, I mean, if you look at your own life before you were Christian to now, it is a work of God. It is a miracle. The things that are happening in your life now, considering what happened before. So, yes. Dale. So they tasted the Holy Spirit, they shared in the Holy Spirit as in um, they were partakers of the everything that the Holy Spirit was doing in, um, in that particular community. Again, only God knows people's hearts, so I cannot comment on that. But again, from the verse, what it says is that they were among us, that they were taking part in everything that the Spirit was doing, but then they fell away. Okay, one last comment because it's 9.50. Trish. Yes. Just to summarize what Trish was saying for the recording, when we are not walking, or when we when we are not walking in the spirit, we need to confess, we need to submit, and we need to be humble to acknowledge that um, it's not happening. And that is part of Ephesians five nineteen to twenty one, where you submit to others. All right, so that will be the last comment. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, morning. Again, thank you, Lord, for how you have revealed yourself to us in the, in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and Holy Spirit of God. We thank you that you are living in us. And Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you will help us every day to be yielded to you more and more so that we will walk in you and that we will be transformed uh, into the image of, your, of, um, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.